I don't know if you know this. You probably do. But we are right in the middle of Easter. I know that we're thinking Easter and we're thinking back on April 17th, but we are actually right in the middle of the season of Easter. The resurrection of Jesus, Easter, can in some ways seem somewhat pedestrian to us. God becomes our co-pilot in life and we become numb to who's actually walking with us day in and day out. It becomes as becomes as ordinary as driving down the road. But you know, going down the road can be dangerous. It happened again to me this week. I was going down Henry Burke, getting ready to turn right on Amherst Street. And if you're familiar with this intersection over here, when you turn right, the traffic coming the other way is not supposed to turn left. But it happened again. Another person decided they wanted to take the left turn there while I was taking the right turn, and they were coming right at me again. It can be dangerous going down the road. Many accidents have occurred at this corner because people go the wrong way. Have you ever been driving and realized you're going the wrong way? Maybe you're going down the road and you suddenly go, that's not the exit I was looking for. And it was too far down the road and you end up turning around and going back. Maybe you're like me and sometimes my car just follows its way to coffee shops. And then I, what, am I, what am I doing there? I wasn't planning on going there. You're convinced you're right and then something breaks in upon you that you need to go in another direction. Well, we're going to look at Acts chapter 9 today, and there we find this man by the name of Saul, and he is on this road to Damascus, and there's two things he does not know. He does not know this. He does not know he's going the wrong way. And secondly, he does not know that that's all about to change, that the trajectory of his life is about to change. Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 1, we read these words. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. This is the word of the Lord for us today. There's a question that this passage asks us today. And the question is this, have I encountered the living Christ? You can't walk away from a genuine encounter with Jesus and stay the same. We see that from Paul, and we're going to see that as we unpack this a little bit. But first, notice this about the living Jesus. The resurrected Christ cannot remain alone. He just can't. Pastor Fern last week alluded to it. 
There are at least 15 post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in, with individuals, with groups, with different people. He encountered very real people, very alive people who could verify the fact that he rose from the dead. And yet, when we look at the encounter of, say, Mary at the tomb, or the disciples in the upper room, we don't really relate. We kind of look at that and we say, well, that's kind of cool. That'd be kind of different for Jesus to walk through the door. But we don't really relate to that. In fact, some don't relate to it. Some can't accept it to the degree that they turn the resurrection of Jesus into a metaphor. Nothing more than a spiritual metaphor. It didn't really happen, just a spiritual metaphor. But the problem is the overwhelming evidence of all of that does not permit that. The words of the poet John Updike bear repeating and helping us hear this in his seven stanzas for Easter. He says this, Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered, out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. And then he says this, Let us not mock God with metaphor. Let us walk through the door. Let us walk through the door with the living Christ. Yes, it's hard to relate to a resurrection appearance. But what about an encounter long after the resurrection of Jesus? An encounter of someone who never physically saw him. An encounter several years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. An encounter much like, much like the encounter we might have where we don't see him. In some ways, someone like us. The famous St. Paul is that someone on the road to Damascus. We are all traveling on a road. We're all on a journey, every one of us. The destination of that journey, we're often taught, is based on our determination of where we want to go in life or how we want our life to be defined or what is going to matter most to us. Those are questions we ask on the road. We're all on the road. Think about Paul's life briefly for a moment. When you look at Scripture and you scan the Scriptures about what it has to say about the Apostle Paul, we know this. He was considered a good person by many. His life was marked by a stellar religious heritage. He had a phenomenal education. He was trained and educated by the best. He had an incredible commitment to what he was doing. We see as we read through Scripture that he was a good citizen. He was a good Roman citizen. He followed the rule of law. And Paul, Paul was committed to doing the right thing. Or at least he thought he was. Because you see, then there's this other side. He was passionate about his religion and about his job and about his training and about his heritage and all those things. 
But he defended his religious heritage and commitment by persecuting and approving the murder of Christians. He cloaked his righteousness in violence in the name of God. The last thing we hear about Paul before we get to the passage of his encounter on the road to Damascus, this is the last description of Paul before the road to Damascus. In Acts chapter 8, we read, Saul began to wreak havoc against the church. Entering one house after another, he would drag off both men and women and throw them into prison. That's who he was. That's Saul. That's who he was. What's happening? This is, this is like the most religious guy around. This is the guy committed. What's happening here? What's missing here? Well, in describing this later, after he's defending the Christian faith later, he says this, describing this whole scene. He says, We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You don't hear that too often in life today. You don't hear people talking about kicking against the goads or about the goads at all. But a goad was a sharp prod that was used to move livestock along. And if the livestock resisted and they were goaded with this prod and they rebelled against moving along, it would hurt them. It would be hard on them. For Paul, as it says in the New Century Version, it was as if Jesus was saying to him, Paul, what you are doing is hurting yourself. You are hurting yourself as you fight against me. You are hurting yourself as you go your own way. You're hurting yourself. The point is this. Paul's life was in his own power. Saul His life was in his own power, on his terms. It was defined by a misplaced purpose. It was defined by a disordered pride. And outwardly, he was a religious superstar. He was the most religious guy in the crowd. And yet it was destructive to his life and to the lives of others. What's happening? Well, I think we get an inkling later on when he's writing to his protege, Timothy. He talks about having a form of godliness but denying its power. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Nothing sucks the life out of the Christian faith more than a form of religion but denying the real-life power of a living Christ. Nothing sucks the life out of it more than that. Jesus Christ is alive, but it's easy to allow Easter to become just form, just giving a nod to God. But, But Easter is not intended to be a day that we you know, celebrate the resurrection, the high day of the year. That's really not the intention of Easter. The intention is not a day, but a life lived. A life lived not in our own strength and our own power, but in His. And so the invitation of this text that we read in Acts chapter 9, 
is not to some special effects experience where all of a sudden the light breaks in upon us on Amherst Street and we're told to go in a different direction or on your road, in your neighborhood. All of a sudden, I have this great appearance from God. That's not the purpose of this text. Not to have some experience, but rather be encountered with the genuine life of God in Christ. He is alive. Jesus is alive. This isn't just intellectual assent to a doctrine or stimulation from some emotional experience or or just rote religious practice rooted in my own upbringing or my heritage. Jesus is alive. Do we know that? Ross Hastings writes, I am convinced that most evangelical Christians, despite the fact that they would die for the belief that Jesus Christ rose literally and bodily from the dead, know very little about resurrection living. That is, guilt-free, joyful, and passionately missional, other-oriented Christianity. Jesus is alive. Easter is for living Jesus met Paul on the road right where he was. And Jesus wants to meet us on the road right where we are, wherever we are on the road in life right now. Peter writes this later. He says that in God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. A living hope. An actual living hope. Paul encountered Jesus right where he was, right in the midst of his life. Even though Paul was kicking against the goads, even though Paul was going in a direction completely opposite of where God wanted him to go, God meets him there. It's a beautiful picture that we find on the road to Damascus of the determination of God to encounter us right where we are, I've thought about this through the week. Do I need to have an encounter with God? Or do I need God to have an encounter with me? Because what happens here is Paul's not looking for an encounter with the living God. But the living God initiates an encounter with Paul. And it's this beautiful picture of God encountering us right where we are. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus taking the initiative to encounter Paul. We have a word for that. We call that provenient grace, where God goes before us. For all of us, God takes the initiative towards us. He does that for us. Stephen Machia recently wrote, God initiates love, grace, mercy, and peace into our troubled hearts and personal lives all the time. No exceptions, always and forever. All the time, no exceptions, always and forever. God is taking initiative toward you and me. So what road are you going down? You know your life. What road are you going down? Where is it in your road that you need an encounter? You need God to encounter you on the road that you're walking on, you're living on, the way that you're going? Is there any place where you've fallen into a, a form 
of religion. Denying the power of his presence. Here's the news today. And if, if there's nothing else we get the rest of the day, get this. God's moving toward you. God is moving toward you. He's moving towards you. He's moving towards me. He's taking the initiative towards us. What good news that is. God is moving towards us. As Paul tells the scholars in Athens, the, 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 the philosophers of Athens in Acts 17, he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Those are anchoring words that this life of faith is not just an acknowledgement of God. It's not just giving a nod to God. It's not just even an acknowledgement of a great historical day like the first Easter. But rather, this is doing life with God. This is the with God life that God invites us into. Well, we read on and we see what this encounter did in Paul's life. Paul went from charging down the road, bent on destroying and fighting Jesus, to becoming one who would offer his life for Christ and offer the life of Christ even to his enemies, and he would suffer as a result. It was described this way after he was, he was uh, following Jesus. Others looked at him, and this is what they said. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? They were scratching their heads. He, he, he goes from destroying those who carried the name of Jesus to carrying the name of Jesus everywhere. These people couldn't believe the change. They, they could not believe what had happened in his life. And his life asks my life a question. And the question is this. Is my life and my faith that compelling? Is my life and my faith that compelling to the world around me? That's a question for us today. Paul would later write from his own experience, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Something so transformative happened that it created new creation. And so what's happening here? Well, first, this encounter was so much more than passive acceptance of Jesus. This encounter was not, let's just pray a prayer and take care of heaven. That's not what this is about. God met Paul on the road where he was. It's so much more than a passive acceptance of Jesus. It's something more. It's first of all this. There is a new Lord to worship in Paul's life. And that's what the goal here is. There's a new Lord to worship. Jesus now becomes everything to him. You know, every one of us has a Lord. Every one of us has, we worship. Every one of us are wired for worship. And every one of us has a Lord. Someone or something is our point of worship. Every one of us. And for Paul, his focus was misplaced. Now, he has a new Lord. Jesus becomes everything to him. He no longer 
built his pride around his life around his pride or his accomplishments or his education or his religious performance or purity or his national identity or power. Read Philippians 3 and you see how he just talks about all that. But then he says this, I consider everything, all of those things he had, all of it, his religious performance and purity, his heritage, his education, his nationality, his power, all of it, he said, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. That I may gain Christ. Remember the question that is asked Paul on the road to Damascus? Or he asks, he asks, who are you, Lord? And the answer is, I am Jesus. Well, you see, that encounter altered his disposition of his heart towards Jesus. And for the remainder of his life, Jesus' Lord was the hallmark. No longer was he kicking against the goads. He was now seeking to bend the arc of his life around God's way. So how am I bending the arc of my life around the way of God? How am I bending the arc of my life around the way of Jesus? How am I building my life on Jesus? A new Lord to worship. Paul also had a new way to see. That light broke in upon him, and he went blind. And later on, this man Ananias comes up to him and read these words. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He saw life as a new person with a new way of living and a new power to live with. The power of God's presence through the Holy Spirit. Apart from which, he could not do this. No longer was he bound by the need for power and control and self-significance. God changed him, transformed him, and he saw others differently. His vision of life and of the world changed. It shifted. His words describe it this way, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now we read those words and we can say, well, that's just talking about being heavenly minded. But it's so much more than that. This is more than just looking at God as the guy upstairs. This is recognizing the permeating presence of God in our lives and in our world. That in every place of our lives, God wants to permeate our lives. Do I see that? Do I recognize the permeating presence of God in our lives and our world? Paul had a new way to see as he looked around, which led to a new task to embrace. He was bent on destroying those who called on the name of Jesus. But then we read this. Later in the passage, Jesus says this about Paul. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name. It's a complete flip. Something happens in his life. And Paul is humbled and he begins to understand what grace means. He writes this, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. God's grace did something in his life. It altered his life. But notice, first of all, he says, you know what? I'm the least of the apostles. I I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. Something shifted in him. He came with humility. I think something C.S. Lewis represents what happened to Paul when he went from Saul to Paul. C.S. Lewis said this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And you know what Paul did? was inexcusable. This man, Saul, gave the thumbs up to the torture and the murder and the persecution of many. And God forgave him. And that so altered the rest of his life. Paul believed he could honor God by harming others when he was Saul. But his heart was now transformed by this encounter and he turned from the place of harming people in the name of religion to loving people in the name of Jesus. Going from harming people in the name of religion to loving people in the name of Jesus. J.D. Walt recently wrote, we see God's sovereignty perfectly and completely when we see Jesus. Because in Jesus we see the nature of true sovereignty as holy love, not the power of dictatorial control, but the power of holy love. Paul summarizes this impact, I think, this new task, if you will. He summarizes this when he's confronting the emptiness of mere religious observance. He's writing to a group of churches in the region of Galatia, a group of people who are placing their faith in religious heritage and performance and their own personal purity. And he writes these words to them. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And that became the task of Paul in his sharing of the gospel, in his ministering to the churches, in his writing countless letters, especially those from prison, Over and over and over. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. All of that, all of that, because God encountered him and he welcomed the encounter of God. So where are you on the road today? Where do you need God to encounter you? Where is that place? What is that concern? What is it? Where is it? To be a follower of the living Jesus means God encounters us and we encounter him right where we are, right on the road we are traveling on right now. But here's here's the key for Paul and for us. To be a follower of Jesus as Will Willimon writes, is this. It's to follow a Lord who takes us from where we are to a new place we could not have gone without his call and leading. Paul could not have done what he did, could, would never have changed without the power of God's Spirit in his life. 
Where is it right now? Where is it today that you need a fresh encounter of the living God to take you where you cannot go without him? Where is it where God needs to show up? Where is it on the road that you need the encounter of God to meet you? Our worship team is going to come. And in a moment we're going to sing, Build My Life. But let's pray together. And I invite you this morning to just invite the Lord to meet you right where you are on the road that you're walking down this very moment. Let's pray this prayer. Lord God, I pray that my capacity to know and experience life might be magnified in Christ. By your grace, set the eyes of my heart on Jesus, giving me a widened imagination to see everything from your perspective, to live in faith, and to love my Savior. Lord, you know the place in the road that we each are walking. We pray, Lord God, that in whatever way you desire, that you encounter us. Some today, Lord God, need the encounter of encouragement. Some need the encounter of your comfort. Some, Lord God, need the encounter that shifts direction and perspective. Some may be going down a road, Lord God. They may even think it's the right way, but it's not the right way. We pray for the encounter of the living Christ for each one of us, right where we are. Thank you, God, that you take the initiative toward us. That, Lord God, you desire to bring to us your love and your peace and your strength and your mercy and your grace and your hope and your joy. We pray, Lord God, that we would be welcome to your initiative toward us. For this morning, Lord God, we know that where it is you want to take each one of us, we cannot do in our own strength and power. We need you and the power of your Holy Spirit. Birth us into this living hope this day, each one of us, will give you the praise. Encounter us, O God. In Jesus' name, amen.